Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Chickadilly Emilimadu about her speculative novel, Dazzling. Chickadilly was born in Nottinghamshire and raised in Nigeria. She was the winner of the Curtis Brown First Novel Prize in 2019, and her work has been shortlisted for several awards, including the Shelley Jackson Award. In this episode, we discuss how she used old forms of storytelling in this coming-of-age tale, layering deeper meaning within fiction, and her writing routine, which involves scrapping everything she's written and starting again. But before we hear that, here's Chickadilly with an excerpt from Dazzling. On the day Ozemana's uncle Odiogo died, she developed an itch in the middle of her back that no amount of scratching could ease. She did not tell anyone. Ozemana at eight was a girl who had learned to read a room and provide exactly what it needed. And in that moment, the room needed her silence. Her uncle had just been delivered to their house, shot multiple times by armed robbers. The building filled with panicking and the heavy metal scent of blood. Her mother scurried this way and that, from the medical storeroom come laundry room in the two topmost flats they shared as a family, pulling packets of needles and scalpels and bags of intravenous fluids off the shelves. She handed them to auxiliary nurses who raced downstairs to the ground floor of the four-storey building, where her father's theatre was located, behind swinging double doors. There was no wailing. That would come later. So Ozemana sat and tried to scratch at the itch on her back, just beyond the reach of her fingers. Her sister Mbu smacked the reaching hand away, watching their mother pace, torn between being with her daughters and going downstairs, where she would certainly be in the way of the surgical team. Mbu cradled their sleeping baby sister on her lap, making a spiky sort of nest from her gangly 12-year-old limbs and a cushion. Stop scratching, Mbu said. I don't like how it's doing my ear. Mbu was sensitive to sounds and found many irritating. Ozoemana stopped, but only for a moment. The itch seemed like a concentration of heat rashes without the soothing cool of methylated dusting powder. She rubbed against the knitted antimacassar on the back of the settee, its knotty cobweb design bringing relief. Stop scratching, Mbu repeated, her voice harder. It had been growing steadily so since the return to Nigeria from the UK four years ago, a time Ozemana could no longer fully remember or appreciate. 
Mbu yearned to go back, Ozemana to go forward. They remained at an impasse. Hi, Chikadili. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, Dazzling. Hi, Chloe. It's so great to be here. Can you start by telling us what Dazzling is about? I don't know if I'm the best person for this, you know, because obviously, like when you write the book, you're not always the the best person. And um, they have you do these things called elevator pitches, which I think mm. were just invented by Satan. Um <laughs> I've written the book. Why do I have to tell you what's about? You tell me what to, you tell me what it's about because what I think is about and what you think is about are totally different. And I'm more interested in what you think the book is about than what I think. But anyway, what I think the book is about is about two girls who are growing up in Nigeria, who are living in a very patriarchal society that, if not looks down on women, um, but relegates them to the background somewhat. And these two girls are having to deal with the consequences that their respective fathers have taken, the consequences of actions that their respective fathers have taken on their behalf or have taken that will affect them anyway. And this is in spite of being who they are. So one of the protagonists has a father who is absent and the other one has a father who's dead. And despite the absence of both fathers, um, the consequences of their actions, them being the men of the household, um, has played into the the journey that these girls have to go on. I hate using that word journey, but I, I think the the sort of the growing up that they have to do and quickly in, in a lot of ways are uh, and what that says for girlhood and womanhood in, in 90s Nigeria. Mm. And I read that you were partly inspired by well, part of your inspiration came from a boarding school that you went to. So can you talk about kind of the genesis of this novel, how it began and, and also how it develops? Because obviously the boarding school does play a role, but it is like you've mentioned more about kind of girlhood and womanhood. And there is an element of kind of uh, spiritualism and magical realism as well. So talk to us a little bit about how the idea developed. I'm not sure, Chloe. I mean, I think you 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 live, right? You live life. And if you're an artist, if you're somebody who is that way inclined, then every, every little thing that you've experienced sort of goes in there, but it doesn't stay in the same form. It goes in there, undergoes some changes, and then it comes out as this thing. And sometimes it surprises you as well. But in regards to the boarding school, the setting of the boarding school, I went to this boarding school when I was nine years old. And, you know, like... <laughs> When you're a kid that is bright, um, they don't really know what to do with you. So they just put you in schools, right? Because that's all, I mean, that's the next step. You finish one school, you go to the next one. So I went to, as a, as a result of going to boarding school at nine, I went to university at 16 and I did my master's at 21. And so it, it was very much a school that was, it was my first time of being away from my parents. My parents were very protective. I don't want to use the word protective, but we're very protective because for the longest time we were all girls. Um, and so it was a shock to the system to not be with my parents anymore, mm. but also to be in another state and not just in another state, but in this boarding school that was, you get to the state and then that's where the journey begins. So it was very much inside a forest and it was a massive school. I never saw the end of the, I never saw, I always saw the the big defense at the, at the front when you come into the, into the school is very much as I described it in Dazzling. But I never ever saw the ends of the compound. I never saw the 
to the right, to the left, all, all the way after the hostels. It, I just there's just no end because it was a massive um tract of land. And so many, many tracts of land. And so it was a school that shaped, because it was my first time of being away from home, it shaped, I don't want to use the word trauma because everybody uses the word trauma nowadays, right? But it must have made an impact that I'm still writing about it 30 odd years later. And with that, I have given away my age. But <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, it was, it shaped, it, it was my first time of being away from my parents. And my first time of having to identify who I was outside of the parental unit you know so you grow up with everybody knowing your parents and you have this nice bubble where you went to primary school with the same people you go to church with the same people and suddenly you're plucked away from that and you're put into a place where nobody really cares who you are they care what your abilities are how well you do in school and how well you do as a school daughter you know fetching water cleaning your senior girl's corner making up Passing her, passing her plates and getting her dinner and all those kind of stuff. So you very much, uh, it was my first sort of, uh, maybe my second sort of coming to terms with who I was. And because it was a totally different setting, what I could do in that setting. And so it it was sort of, it, it, it branded, it branded me somewhat with, um, with this scar <laughs> that had to come out in this book because it was a very shocking place for me to be. It was a place I had no gate, much like in the book, because being outside school was much worse than being inside school. And school was pretty bad. So, you know, it was just, it was, it went in there and stayed for a few decades and then it came out as this thing, this book. Yeah. Mm. And I guess one question I have is that was this a way for you to explore the kind of, to take the coming of age tropes and twist them into your own world and give them a, a different edge that we haven't seen before. The idea that there's magic all around us is not one that is that is uh that is a past, it's not past times where I come from. Mm. Um we very much believe that our ancestors are still all around us and that you have to sort of give thanks for them and invoke them to come and join you in meals and things like that. And so um, there wasn't much twisting. There was, there was, uh, so the one thing I did was I made sure that the, so the idea of leopard societies and secret societies are things that are frowned upon by the church and consequently by modern Nigerians. And I wanted to, I wanted to show what their purposes were. Like a lot of stuff is demonized in Nigeria when, they, when it has to do with traditional culture. And people are afraid of um, gods and goddesses and shrines and things like that. So people would, to prove their their <clears throat> zealousness in Christianity, would storm these shrines and pull out the gods and burn them. And it's like, my friend, calm down, please. Nobody's, you know, just calm down, worship God if you want. And so it was just a way for me to, I like to say things in a, in a, in a hidden way. I like to, you know, because sometimes where, where I come from, the truth is really, really hard for some people to hear. And so I like to do things that people consider speculative fiction. I don't consider it speculative fiction, but I understand the need to categorize it that way. Um, in order to tell my truth without sort of, uh, without too much of a backlash, because you can read it on the surface as, oh, it's two girls who, one of them who turns into a leopard and the other one who makes a deal with a spirit. 
But then if you're somebody who's used to reading critically, there's second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and many, as many layers as possible. And so what I find is that it's much easier for me to write things in a way that we would have read them because speculative fiction, after all, in quotes, I'm putting this in quotes, is the first kind of fiction. You know, we have a lot of stories of myths and legends and it's it's all over the world. Is the world over? Is the is all the cultures have the same thing? And I think it's easier for people to assimilate without feeling as though you're preaching at them or you're pointing at them or you're criticizing them or you're demonizing whatever practices they have. And so I, I wanted to bring out, yes, the old forms of storytelling, but also to show the dichotomies between traditional living and traditional ways of life and traditional ways of worship and traditional beliefs, as well as the contemporary and, in the, and the ways in which they still merge. And perhaps that way we shouldn't be afraid so much of, of the past or of things we don't understand, we should seek to understand them. I mean, you can only demonize something when you understand it, right? A lot of people are really afraid to step out of their comfort zones and find out who their ancestors are and what they did, etc. So I was very interested in, in doing that, in making sure that, you know, it was acceptable to modern Nigeria. And if not acceptable, that it made you think or it made you afraid or whatever. It just made you, I need people to 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 be to be able to enjoy the story without without rejecting outright the the possibilities contained therein. Mm. is that what appeals to you then about writing about mythology and exploring mythology this idea of telling a deeper story in a in a, a form that people are used to because obviously we all grow up with mythology and uh, folk tales and fairy tales that's part of whatever culture you're from you're you know it starts with an oral kind of uh tradition in storytelling so is that kind of why that genre appeals to you I think so. Yes. I mean, at the beginning, I started because I was a bit chicken and I didn't want, if you're somebody who is not used to reading, I didn't want you to find out what I was trying to say. I wanted you to enjoy the surface minutes and just go away. And a lot of that had to do with the things that I had to say and the way that I had to say them in contrast to the way that I was brought up. Um, you want to be able to tell certain truths without losing your entire Right now, I'm okay to lose anybody. It's like, if you don't like what I'm writing, fine, bye. You know, but at the time, <laughs> at the time I was young and I didn't want to lose my family. I didn't want anybody to kind of like be angry or upset and, and all that stuff. And obviously, like, these stories appealed to me because I grew up also hearing stories that were told to me by my grandma, by my mother, especially. My mom was very good at storytelling. But also, like, I read a lot of Greek and Norse mythology growing up. And I could never understand why there was that difference in the way that our stories were treated and the way the reverence that was uh, reserved for Greek and Norse tales. I mean, look at Marvel, for instance, you know, they've done it wrongly, but it doesn't matter because they're still doing it anyway. And so I I wanted to tell my truth in a way that were not readily, that were readily accessible to the psyche and were readily accessible to the soul. Because if you're not using logic to block out these messages because a lot of time people are trying to read and they're trying to apply logic to this. No, 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 no. I wanted my stories to bypass that logic, that logic barrier that people put on things. And I wanted it to reach a place of universality, a place where you know the truth. The truth is there, it's hitting you, whether you like it or not. And so a lot of it, like I said, stemmed from fear and not wanting to be so open and so exposed. Uh, the second point being obviously like I was this was the format in which I was I was I was familiar and I loved to to explore these formats you know but I mean it started out 
primarily with me trying to hide certain truths to fold them in. You know, like when you're making a cake and they say, now you fold the flour in. You know, you have to use this figure of eight to fold the flour in so you don't get all the air bubbles out. And it's very much that technique, you know, let's fold the truth out without collapsing the cake or making it dense. Let's just make it a very nice aerated cake with all the flour folded in. You don't taste the flour, do you? You don't, you know, but it's there, it's there. So that was why I chose... I mean, I didn't, it wasn't even a conscious choice, Chloe. It wasn't as if I said, oh, I'm just going to write speculative fiction now. And I have tried other, and I do write other forms of fiction. It's just, it appeals to me more to have things that are, to which people have a visceral, visceral reaction. You know, things like horror, for instance, you know, because I need to be able to reach people when they have their defenses down, when they don't have that thing going, oh, but this is, I have to suspend belief to this extent, or oh, well, this is, bollocks you know i need to be able to reach you so that when everybody all the people that you have to impress are not there and that veneer that you put up for society isn't there you know it touches you somewhere that you have no choice but to agree or to accept you know it touches you where you cannot deny so that's why i write stories like that because deep down inside there are stories that appeal to everybody regardless of what culture that you come from mm. And I just wanted to touch on um, maybe, I guess, a more practical aspect of this novel, because one of your narrator's treasure, her chapters are told in a really kind of fun and a great kind of, she's got a great storytelling uh, cadence about her voice. And I was wondering how easy it was for you to slip into her voice. Was that something you really worked out or did it kind of, did her voice come to you kind of naturally? Um, I think... It was one of those things where I had to fight with dazzling a bit because I thought I wanted it to be something and it was telling me, no, I don't want to be this thing that you want me to be. And so there was a lot of writing and rewriting. So I kept on changing their points of view because I couldn't, I couldn't quite get it to work. I knew what treasure was going to sound like from the beginning, but I kept trying to make her third person. And she was like, uh, no, I don't think so because she's <laughs> that way. You know, if you read her, you see she's that way. I don't think so. And for that, because I don't think so, I'm going to spoil this whole book. And she'll just go, <laughs> and still, after 60 something thousand words, 50 something thousand words, 90 something thousand words, she'll just go, well, I told you. And so I, I very much, I knew how she wanted to, I knew the, the way that she was going to talk because she kept telling me, but I didn't realize at the time that she wasn't speaking English. I thought she was speaking some form of English. So I kept trying to write her the way that I would write, like what we call pidgin English in West Africa. Oh, and she just, she wasn't having it. Because anybody who is Igbo, there are a lot of Easter eggs in, in Dazzling for people who are Igbo and for people who are Nigerian. And then maybe a few for people who are African before anybody else. But if you're Igbo, there are so many Easter eggs in there. And one of the Easter eggs is that if you read Treasure's passages in Igbo, it's a direct transliteration. So she's not speaking English. There's some words that she says in English, but you can tell what those words are because they are, um, the words are, the format of the words are English words that have been put in the wrong place, you know, grammatically, or have been given a tense that doesn't exist, or have been changed into nouns from verbs and things like that. You can tell those ones, but they're just scattered in between the the expressions that she uses and all the way that she talks is is basically an Igbo way of speaking. She's just speaking Igbo, and that was also important to me because I wanted to I wanted people to understand that having wealth or access 
did not equal to it was not equal to her her family being this middle class family. They were middle class, but they're the sort of middle class in Nigeria people tend to look down on now with post-colonialism. It was a middle class where the man had grafted and made his money as a businessman and he had all the latest technology and so on and so forth, but he didn't speak English properly. You know, his wife was stunning, knew some English, knew French better because she had worked in, you know, in a lot of African French countries. And so their daughter, with all the maids and the drivers and that she grew up with, she doesn't even speak English very well. And so even in the middle class in which they found themselves, they are being discriminated against. And so I wanted to show how that would feel like. And the way that that would come across would be if she spoke Igbo, but she had, you know, even in that, in that, um, in that space, she had people looked down on her and so it affected the way that she also spoke English when she because there are some bits where she's trying to communicate in English and you can tell English is not her first language and it's just really really odd and so for her she speaks in Igbo yes and therefore Ozemena also she I couldn't figure out how I, I didn't I realized very quickly that I didn't want her to talk in first person so I suppose um, with her also, it was uh, my editor kept saying, "This is really interesting that you've chosen to, you've chosen to um, do this where she's, you're speaking about her in the third person, but it's so close." And I just thought, "Yeah, that's what she wanted me to do, so I did it." <laughs> you know, that's the only thing that worked. She wouldn't, she wouldn't talk in the first person. But then, as time went on, I realized that it was because she was not comfortable stepping into this role as leopard. You know, there had to be some distance between her and what she was experiencing in order for her to go through it because she's only nine years old after all. So it sounds like a lot of your writing is instinctive and comes from, I guess, a separate place from inside your head. So it's your characters telling you what they, how they want you to write. Um, and yeah, they're cows. <laughs> yeah, just cows, all of them. Yeah, it, sounds, yeah. it sounds like you did a lot of writing before you realised that. You said something like 60,000 words you'd written or 90,000 words. So are you the kind of writer then that just almost lets your characters do the talking and you're just there to translate it onto the page? No, no, which is why I fought with this book so much. You know, <laughs> which is, I mean, this was a new thing for me. I'm used to telling them what to do and... And these girls were just not letting me. And it was, it was, it was a lot of grappling, you know. In total, I have about half a million words of different drafts because I counted it up and I put them all inside the folder because I just had to look at it and think, wow, thank you so much for wasting my time all these years. But <laughs> I thought, no, no, you wasted your own time, Chikodli, because they were telling you what they wanted and you wouldn't listen. So it's not a way that I have of working of just kind of like listening to them. Like, but these girls. And I'm talking even right now, sometimes I'm in the shower and it's always, Ozemela likes to talk when I'm in the shower, when I don't have anything to write. And she's like, nye, 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 nye. I'm going, shut up, you know? Um, so they were very much, I think, I mean, if you were to look at it scientifically, of course, you could say that it was the time that the novel was going to get written and that I had taken all these many years to figure it out. And so, like I said, I had to get out of my logical brain's way. I had to stay away from, oh, I'm going to plot it like this because I already knew what it was. I had to trust that I had figured it all out and it, I knew what I was doing. And so the minute I let them talk the way that they wanted to talk, it just, it was done in four months, Chloe. Wow. Four 
months. I stopped fighting since 2000 and what? Uh, 2000. I finished the first draft in quotes, 2016. And I had been working on it since what, 2014? I don't even know. But like, as soon as I decided, okay, I'm just going to leave you alone now. Four months, November, December, January, February. By March, I was done. And in that March that I was done, I then submitted it to Curtis Brown. And by August, I knew I was on the, on the short list. You know, everything just went quickly. And so I think sometimes you have to get out of your own way mm. because the story knows what it wants to be, by which I mean your subconscious knows what it wants to be. You already know, especially if you've had a long time to figure it out. And I tend to have a lot of things in my head just percolating and marinating and just doing their own thing. But I mean, there are some stories that you have to kind of like give a push to. There are some scenes that you write and they don't fit and you put them aside and suddenly the story around which they, into which they fit just, you know, happens. And you're like, oh yeah, that's what it is. But for this one, it was very much a, a matter of me getting out of my own way mm. and realizing that on some level I had worked it out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And I know you've written a lot of short stories. So had you always planned to write this novel? I know you, you worked on it for a couple of years and then let it go for a while. But had you always had at the back of your mind, this is this is going to be a novel, this is what I've got to work on? Or did that come as more of a surprise to you that it was going to be a novel? Oh, no, I knew it was going to be a novel. Yeah, I knew it was going to be a novel. I just, I didn't know what novel I was going to write first. But I knew it was I knew Dazzling was going to be a novel. So it's always the plan that it will become a novel. So when I started writing, I knew I was writing a novel. Um 
but yeah, with short stories, I mean, I didn't start out with short stories. I started out when I was very little. I started a festival writing plays. So I used to write plays because of uh, the fact that I had a lot of access to plays. I had access to the plays of people like Wole Shoyinka, who was the uh, first Nobel laureate from Africa, and uh, Zulu Shofola, and who else? A few other people whose names I can't even remember. Who is it? Olaro Timi. Olaro Timi is the one who wrote The Gods Are Not to Blame. And I had access to these plays from very, very young. So obviously you emulate what it is that you have, you know, tried. And I didn't, I mean, I always, I also had access to books, to novels as well, but I wanted to try plays because there weren't that many of them around me compared to prose fiction. And so I started with, with plays. And then from plays, I went to poetry, which we will not be talking about because I was a teenager. <laughs> and I had so many feelings, so many feelings. Oh, unrequited love. Um. And then from there, I went to, to short stories and short stories basically arrived out of a desire to, to tell stories, but also at the time, because I had children, or I had a child um, and I had left the BBC. I had worked at the BBC prior to that for three years, but I'd left the BBC and it arose out of a need to tell a story from beginning to end as quickly as possible in the time it took to for the baby to nap. And so it could only have happened after I worked at the BBC and after I had taken, after I had had a journalism career in newspapers as well, because the rigors of 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 um <clears throat> writing, writing to to a particular word count or writing to a particular or writing to a particular um uh, length of audio meant that I was able to then apply the same practice to to short story writing, and so. That dazzling I didn't know was going to be a novel, but I didn't know that that this was going to be the first novel I wrote. You know, I when it came, I just sort of accepted that it was going to be this book. Yeah. Mm. Did you have a gut feeling that you had something special as you were writing it? Uh, yes, but only after I let go of it. After mm. only after I let go of fighting with it, you know. I wrote it and I just thought, so much. And so I had no qualms about passing it along to anybody else after that point, because I thought if it doesn't sell and if nobody gets it and nobody likes it, it's fine because I get it and I like it. So it's not about passing it on to your mother. I mean, sometimes you have people that just read and they oh, it's good, you know, but you know that you've written nonsense. You know, I mean, you have to have that self-awareness as a writer to know when something is not on, is not up to par. Mm. don't hand over subpar work because you feel you have to make a certain deadline and get into a certain thing and try and make no so i knew when it was ready i knew when it was ready for somebody else outside of myself to see it i knew i knew when it was and before then i had got a lot of like some of my friends had criticized me some of my writer friends they're going oh you're wasting so much time because i kept on scrapping and going i'm starting from the beginning and, and have this particular friend tendai who was saying i'm really disappointed that you're doing this you just have to let it go and i'm thinking it's not there yet i'm fine with your disappointment it's not there yet and so when it was ready when it was to the point where I knew that I had no qualms with anybody seeing like this was the best that I could do at this point of my career then I let it go and it was fine mm. yeah because you did let it go and you entered it for the Curtis Brown um, first novel prize and um, as we know you won and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that experience about entering the prize and how that progressed and led to your book deal yeah um 
I can't even remember when I did enter the prize or when I found out about the prize. And I think I entered it on a whim because I was querying at the time. So I had this, I was query, querying in ways I, I couldn't really keep my mind straight with the people because I, I had this uh, Excel spreadsheet that I was using to, to keep score with people I had queried. I had done like the first set of five or so, and I was on the second set of five. And I found this thing while I was trying to find who to query in Curtis Brown. So I thought, well, it's already done. The novel is finished. It wasn't, you know, and all they needed for me was 10,000 words. Yeah, no big deal. I have 10,000 words. So I just submitted the first 10,000 words and I just continued querying. I think I, I think I, I, I submitted it in, um, I want to say June, uh, and then by August I was I got a message that I had I had been longlisted, and I just thought, yay! And because it was August, I was not querying in that period, because or just before August, I wasn't querying in that period because I know everything slows down. It's like in journalism, everything goes dead in August, nothing happens. So I thought nobody's going to see this thing anyway, so I might as well pick it back up in September. So I had a nice holiday with my children. You know, I think we moved house in that August and it was hectic anyway. So I just put it out of my mind. I didn't think about it. To me, it was come September, once the kids go back to school, I'll go back to querying again. When I got the message that I was shortlisted, I can't remember what time it was actually. I, I, I'm really bad with time frames. But anyway, so after that, you know, it was like, yeah, we, we've, I thought, I thought, well, it doesn't matter if I don't win because at that point I was sort of overwinning things. And, um, you know, you start out as a baby writer, you dream about winning awards and stuff. And then you realize that awards are very subjective, aren't they? If you had a totally separate set of judges in totally different circumstances to whatever has happened in their individual lives and collectively that morning is you have a totally different set of of winners or shortlisted candidates or whatever and so i had kind of got over it by that point i was like hey, if i win i win if i don't win i don't win it just didn't matter i was just going to continue querying and then they called me they said they were going to call me again uh so i got a call from curtis brown saying oh we're going to call you at this time can you be available i was a rotting dean i was editing the book and uh, at the time they said they were going to call me. I had stepped out to get my lunch. And I thought, okay, well, call me. I get to avoid and just tell me I didn't win. I'll say thank you. And they called me and said I had won. And I, I had to sit. I had to sit down. I had to sit down. I kept on saying, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And they were laughing. But then they didn't realize I was dying. I was like, what am I going to do now? Like, how, what am I supposed to? You know, I don't even know. Because it was not an avenue I expected. Mm. The avenue I expected was you were in the trenches. You query, 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 query. Maybe somebody will like it. And then they will take it on. If they don't like it, you shelve it. You do another one again. So I was prepared to suffer. I had done the 10-year stint of working on short stories and things like that. But I was prepared to suffer some more. I thought I was going to have one of those, you know. Instead, what I had was, okay, so now you have this prize and now you have this person. But at the same time, as soon as I had an offer from an, from an agent, I had two more offers from different agents. I was like, but now why are you, this is confusion for me now. <laughs> I don't want this. I want someone to tell me, okay, so this is your agent, go with them. But in the end, I decided to go with my agent because like uh, she had read 3,000 plus things based on fiction 10,000 words each 
and she decided it was me she wanted and so it was pretty easy for me to decide oh, I want you back too it's fine so I had to turn down the other lovely lovely agents and go with my agent And I know the judges said that they found your work so compelling and confident that they were even surprised that it was your first attempt at a novel and they'd never would have guessed that. So I was wondering when you moved on to kind of looking at Dazzling with your agent and then with your editors, was there much editing to do? Did you feel, I mean, you know, I know you'd worked on it for a long time. Was there a lot of work still that had to be done by the time you got to your editor? <laughs> I feel like if you call my my editor and ask her this question, she'll say yes, and she's a nightmare. Because she, she did say that my book, my book launch, oh my gosh, she's a nightmare too. And we love her. She's brilliant, but she's also a nightmare. And I tell you why. Because they would write blah, 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 and give me notes. And I'll send them back a whole totally different manuscript. And they'll go, but what? <laughs> and I'll say, listen, trust me. Trust me. This is better than the one I sent you before. And they'd read it. And they go, oh my God, yeah, it is great. And that's because when they give me notes, it sparks it sparks something else. Mm. I suddenly see they're trying to maybe take get me to take a, a certain path. And I think, actually, no, I'm going to jump across this river and take this path instead because I can see so much clearly what you're trying to get me to do that is opened up another another possibility of what it could be. And so in that vein, there was a lot of work because each time they had a new manuscript. Um, uh, they came up with the idea of having... So I had a lot less treasure than I had before. And they thought, nah, she disappears at some point. Don't don't have her disappear like that. Because I was like, oh, and then, and then this happened. As well. So they they said we would like her to have a lot more to say because we really like how she speaks. And she had a lot more to say. I just didn't want her to say it. Because like <laughs> I said, she can be a she can be a cow. Um and she's a she's a lovely cow, but she's still a cow. And and um so and obviously like what I had to get over was the idea of having a book two because it meant that I was subconsciously saving bits for book two. Right. So that was the major change. That was like about 90% of the change because they said to me, no, 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 no. Whatever I think it is you think you're saving, could you please put it all in here? And so <laughs> I had to kind of give give over a lot more than I wanted to give over because they kept saying, no, we want this to be a standard. We don't know what you're doing with the other. We don't know what you're doing. But for this book, this is how we want you to give us everything. And they said, can you pitch us the book two and three? My my, my um, agent said, pitch me the book two and three. Let me hear what it is that you're trying to do. And I told her, she said, yeah, yeah, but just put it, it's fine. Just put it all in. So I put it all in. And uh, that was the biggest change, I think, was they had me give up a lot more than I would have given up. But it made the book so much better because it means it means that it's a lot richer work for it. It's a lot more rounded work for it. And also, it didn't actually take away from all the things I have planned. I'm not saying that there is a book two or book three, but if they were book two or book three and book three, it doesn't actually take away from it at all. Mm. So that was uh, very good editing. So do you think your writing process or style has changed or developed at all since writing Dazzling? Because I know you said this book came to you in a in a slightly different way to your other work. But do you think now you've got a better sense of how to write a novel or do you think it's going to be totally different next time? No, 
<laughs> no, um, because oh, when I say I didn't plan it out, I mean, I didn't have spreadsheets. Some people have mm. spreadsheets. They have, you know, when you go into Scrivener, it gives you like the out the chance to to put a picture to the to the name of the character, to have like a, a different character profile. All of that did not work for me because I tried it mm. and it just was grim. It didn't work that way because it didn't feel real to me having them with real faces. No, no, no. I don't see their faces when I'm, I don't see, mm. I know what their bodies look like, but I don't see their faces. So having the face to the name just ruined everything and having it planned out the way that I was, I thought this is how a novelist should plan something, you know, they should have a family tree, you know? And it's like, okay, this is how, you know, uh, G, GR, GR, GRR Martin, this is how he plans things. You know, he has this, Epic family trees, and you must know their great, 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 great grandmother. And you know, so I tried that, but mm. it didn't work. And that's because I was trying to fit the book into a way that it does not go. You know, I know, I know the history, I know Treasure's history, I know her dad's history to an extent. I know Ozemena's history. I know her dad's history. I know her mom's history. I know her ancestors' history. You know, so I just had to trust that it was there. If you need me to write it now that the book is done, fine. <laughs> I will write it and it will be fine. But at the planning stage, nah. It was like I was trying to wrangle a snake. Mm. You know, a snake that had gone through a river of oil, a vat of oil, and I was trying to wrangle it. It's a muscular thing, you know, snakes, muscular things. And you think, oh, it's... no, it was muscular and it was fighting me and it was slippery and it was getting away and it was smacking me with his tail. And I was like, oh, I'm concussed. you know, it was a whole thing. So now I can tell you what it is. And that's because I think part of me always has to leave. I have to leave room to be surprised i have mm. to leave room to be to be to be oh okay well so this was in there and i didn't know it was in there it's a little it's little room but it's enough room that it makes the work come alive i can't plan things the way that i can't know you know mm. it doesn't work like that for me right now i'm writing a book too that is not connected to dazzling at all and uh, i already know that i'm not going to plan anything because it won't work you know, mm. if I need to do it, I just need to sit down and do it. And I've just sat down and done 10,000 words. So it it's different. I mean, maybe if I was writing an epic tale, maybe, because at some point you need to um, not contradict yourself. But I believe that's what copy editors are for. And I have a fantastic one called Tara. And so I've decided like, oh, that's another thing I had to learn as a debut is to do as I, I used to do every single thing myself and I still do but because you're so used to working in isolation and because you're so used to being everything to your project I had to learn how to trust that other people who had come into this universe how what I consider to be halfway through that they had the same respect and love and care for the work that I did and so my copy editor, for instance, she was picking up on stuff. I'm like, but you're not even Nigeria. Like, what do you even know? But she knew because in the context of the work, that doesn't make sense. Why have you done that there? You know? And so it's just like a good copy editor is worth her weight in mm. gold because 
they read i don't even know how their brains work i don't think that i could be a copy editor because there's too much of me trying to rather than leave people's work alone there's too much of me trying to get it to go how it should go and a copy editor a good copy editor sees the work in its entirety and sees the work as part of a conversation with something else because there were other things that she was saying to me in the in the notes well, I was like well how do you even know this anyway and that's because she's gone away and she's Googled something and she's done research. And all of this research she's done is just to clarify one teeny tiny point, you know? And you're like, but and they get it. They really do. They like it's just it's amazing. So I had to learn that once you let the work go, it becomes a conversation with a lot of other people who care about the work. I've been fortunate, I've heard horror stories about you know, people and their teams, but I haven't had that. I've had people who want the work to be as it is. They mm. don't want to, I said, I don't want to italicize anything because it others the work. Yeah, done. We get it. I don't want to explain. Yeah, we get it. Everything is in context. We get it. We get it. We get it. And they just want to push the work forward the way that it is. They love the fact that it's, it's an other, in quotes, it's not othered, but it's, it's different to the things that you will find, you know, around here and so that was one of his strengths for the team and so the team you have to trust that they they whatever it is that they are trying to say or do about the work they are trying to they might not get it right but it's coming from a good place they are trying to improve the work and it's left for you to say yes oh that works or no i'm not doing that because the character wouldn't talk that way mm. you know but it's all it's very much a conversation between you and your team and so you have to trust them and kind of take off your writer goggles and go into editor mode yeah it's funny you mentioned that because i know i've had people at events and other writers that are starting out that really worry about that part of it and they say but how do you feel when your agent or your editor says this needs to change or this needs to go or this you know I'm not sure about this and I've said the same as you like I love it because it shows that they're really invested in your work that they understand it that they want to make it better I don't ever feel like it's someone I mean maybe they are picking holes sometimes but they're right to pick the holes because those holes need picking but I never feel like it's an intrusion it always feels like it's the right kind of conversation like you say it's a collaboration and that to me is always the most enjoyable part of it to kind of discuss your your work that's only ever been living in your own head as this thing that you can talk about together as if it's almost a real event or real people yeah and that's the best it is a real it. person how can you say <laughs> that you want your characters to attack you tonight this human this human exists what are you talking about <laughs> but yes i understand what you're saying and also when an editor doesn't get what you're trying to do you will know mm. you know so you save your fight for those times everybody everybody's not your enemy you know yeah. you have to understand in in for it, it happens especially when you're a young writer because you have this massive outsized ego. You need that ego to get you to that point. Don't get me wrong, because everybody wants to be a writer, but nobody wants to do the work to be a writer. You get me? So you need that ego, that self-belief, that outsized ego to get you to the point where you've actually finished the work. But then you have to put that ego in check. You know, you don't know everything. You're not the, you're not the bee's knees. You're not the, I mean, I am, and you are. But that's the point. It's kind of like everybody is unique. Everybody, you know, there's a proverb in in in, in my culture, uh, which is uh, let the hawk perch and let the eagle perch. And if the other one says, if one says the other will not perch, may its wings break or something like that. That's what it means, wings break. Because there's room for everybody. 
there's room for everybody on the to perch on. So there is room for me and for whoever else is out there. And the thing that makes people think that there's no room for them or that they're that nobody understands them is also ego. And when you get mature as a writer, or maybe as a person, forget the writer part. When you get mature as a person, you will learn to see that things are not personal. Nobody is saying that you are rubbish. Because if you are rubbish, you wouldn't get to that point anyway. You're not rubbish. But we're trying to help you get this work to be its mm. most polished state. That's it. And so it takes a certain kind of maturity as a person and as a writer to be able to let go you know, of the work. So I know you like surprises, but I was wondering finally if you could give us a little bit of a hint or a clue about what you're working on now and what's next for you. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed. <laughs> or oh, this is another thing. I don't know how much I'm allowed to do things now. Just, Normally just, I'm just uh, like, just tell you okay, what I'm so doing. You are, you are, you're definitely working <laughs> on something though. That's what you can tell us. Yes, I'm working on a story about... Oh my gosh, I should have checked my agent, shouldn't I? This is <laughs> terrible. I feel like you just threw me under the bus. Um, I'm working on a story about... You can keep it vague, girl... it's fine. Okay, I'm working on a story about this girl who has a love affair just as she's preparing for her wedding and the consequences of women who have had to fold themselves into spaces in which they might not ordinarily fit. Oh, well, I think is. that is just enough of a tease. Thank you, Chikadili, for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been glorious. That was Chikadili Emilimadu talking about her speculative novel, Dazzling, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop, hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.